0: All right, well, greetings. My name is uh, Joel. I'm one of the pastors here with Derek, and um, we're going to end our series in Jonah today. So I'm going to read chapter four, the whole chapter, four, one through 11, and then we'll look at the close of this really interesting story. Um, So hear now the word of God from Jonah, chapter four. do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city, went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, so that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, Let's pray. We're going to look at. Jonah's problem here. Father, we thank you for your word, this um, intricate, beautiful story of of Jonah and strange ending, Um, strange ending with a question, question that calls Jonah's attention and our attention to the deep, deep mercy Your deep love, your deep compassion, your deep pity, even for those who live in opposition to you. So help us to find that beautiful picture. Help us to worship you and your love. Help us to find within ourselves, empowered by your spirit, the strength to to feel something similar find the pity and the grace and the mercy within us that you give us um, so that we can become people who rejoice, who delight, even when you show mercy to our enemies. That's what we're about today. Help us to find that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that began began to sound more like the prayer I would have done to end the sermon than to begin it, but, oh well, you'll hear the same thing at the end. Uh, we've been looking at the story of Jonah, uh, this reluctant prophet. God commissions him to go warn the city of Nineveh about coming judgment. And we've been seeing how this story over and over again reveals just kind of how deep and how wide and in and every, every dimension of, of God's mercy. And this morning, we're looking at chapter four, the final chapter of the story. And it's not like a happy ending, is it? You know, Jonah has gone to Nineveh. Finally, like God said, after much prodding from God, um, he warns them to change or face God's judgment. And lo and behold, the city actually listens to him. Um, they show these signs of repentance. It's not full repentance, but it's, it's a good start. It's good enough for God. And he relents. He says, all right, I'm not going to do it. And Jonah can't stand it. I mean, it, it royally ticks him off. And he unleashes this kind of bitter tirade against God, right? And then the story just ends with this ringing question from God: "Should I not pity that great city?" And we want to, you know, you want to ask like, what what is Jonah's problem? Like, what is driving this anger in him? And in a word, it's it's envy. This this envious anger we see in Jonah. Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century theologian and devoted a lot of time to kind of studying the seven capital vices or seven deadly sins from which all other sin kind of flows. And he describes envy, defines envy as grief over another person's good. And isn't that exactly what we see in, in Jonah? He's grieved, he's pained. Inside his heart breaks, not because evil has happened, but because good has happened to somebody like Nineveh. Good in the form of of mercy, And it makes Jonah, unfortunately, a perfect case study for envy and what it looks like and how it damages us and our relationship with others. But also so interesting in this book, in this chapter, is how God responds to Jonah's envious anger, how he treats his envy like a good doctor, like a good counselor. Um, and so two huge points, the heart of envy and the treatment of envy, and then we'll end with some practical application. So first, the heart of envy. Now, the thing about envy—it's interesting about envy—and uh, one a guy named Jeff Cook, who's written on the seven capital sins—he he makes this point about envy that unlike the other ones like pride, greed, sloth, gluttony, lust, anger—you know—envy it it doesn't—it's not accompanied by like a pleasure like sex, money, power, whatever it is. Envy is not accompanied by pleasure; it's accompanied by in, misery, right? Lust kind of is fun. It's kind of, I mean, it, it energizes you. Anger there's a kind of pleasure in your anger where you feel so strong and you're just going to burn it down. But envy you feel so small and weak and miserable. And it's so interesting. It kind of stands apart from the other main capital vices or or seven deadly sins. And and we, you know, most of us have probably struggled with envy. Maybe you're like, oh, I don't really see it. I don't. I don't really see it. Well, maybe by the end you will, or maybe you won't. I don't know. But but we struggle with envy kind of acutely and more chronically. Acutely, we struggle with it. We hear the news that someone near us, envy, we usually envy people who are in our circles. We don't envy people who live across the country who we never see, unless we grew up with them, maybe. We envy people whom we get our identity from, the relationships that form us, present in the past. Those are the people we envy. And so when someone nears us, gets the job that we so desperately want, there's this pang of kind of jealousy and bitterness that happens in us. Envy can happen acutely like that. Um, somebody gets some blessing that we're waiting for, longing for, and we feel this deep grief. and We almost lament over the good that comes to them. It can be more chronic, though, and more insidious and subtle. Um, We envy the power that other people have just because, oh, we could do so much good with that power if we had that power. And we don't just wish for the power so that we could do good, but we kind of resent and we have bitterness towards the people who have the power that we want. We harbor this kind of ongoing, just subtle rivalry with other people around us. Not necessarily with anyone in particular, but just kind of everyone in our orbit, right? We want to stand out. We want to be the, not just a friend, but kind of the person's best friend, right? We want to feel this kind of low-grade, just significance all the time. When other people start repositioning themselves in our orbit, there's this pang of misery that happens within us. And we feel disoriented, and we feel small. And it leads to this bitterness, and that's, those are all examples of envy, or, uh, envy. We envy friends, and sadly, our envy can render friends as enemies, but we also envy our enemies, right? I mean, Jonah envies Nineveh because they're an enemy. They're part of Assyria, the enemy empire. And it pains him to see them increase in any way. It just pains him. And that raises a question for us, like envy, the grief over over other people's good. Is it always wrong to grieve at the sight of good in others? Is it always wrong because you can imagine these situations, and I can imagine situations where maybe it's not. I mean, maybe you lack physical mobility, and you're watching your kids grow up, and they're running and playing, and you see other parents jump in playing with your kids, and you can't do that, and you're grieved by the sight of that. Is that envy? Is that wrong? Or is it just sadness over something, a good thing that you want? Is it wrong to feel that sadness? Or maybe somebody you're working with who makes your life difficult already gets promoted, and now they're going to be your boss, right? Right? They've been given this good, this promotion, this power, but they're going to use that power to make your life even worse. You don't feel happy for them. You feel maybe sad, maybe confused, maybe a little bit uncertain or afraid. Is that wrong? Is that sinful envy? I don't think so. Closer to home and maybe closer for Jonah, someone's hurt you or they're part of a people who have hurt you and or, or they've threatened you. They stand as a perpetual threat to you and suddenly they experience this kind of change of heart they kind of want to be friends, they want to reconnect, they want to try to reconcile. Are you supposed to just feel like warm fuzzies about that? Oh, that's great, good, let's do. Or is there, is there some resistance, some caution, some suspicion, some, some even sadness? You're, you're unsure how to feel. I mean, just what is Jonah supposed to feel when he sees God loving his enemies so much? How would you feel? Right, it raises the question, what is Jonah supposed to feel? Right? And then maybe I'm being too hard on Jonah, and maybe I'm being too hard on you. Like, is envy that big of a deal? Like of all the capital spices or the big sins, I mean, most people probably wouldn't even name envy in those because it's kind of private, right? It's kind of hidden. It doesn't really show up too much. You know, I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for a while. I don't think I've ever had someone email me, text me, and say, Hey Joel, could we meet? I want to talk about my problem with envy. You know, it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. But if you know someone who experiences this envy, or if you've, if you've experienced it, especially acutely, acutely yourself, you know how hard it can be. It can be horrible. It can be so hard. And Jonah shows us that. He shows us the kind of person we become if we're driven by envy. If we harbor it, we just kind of let it sit and fester. He shows us what we become, and it's not pleasant. one thing Jonah shows us is that despite the fact that envy is kind of private and kind of hidden, and typically we can manage it okay if we avoid all the people that provoke it in us, that envy is a deeply relational problem. I mean, if you look at Jonah and all the relationships that that exist in chapter 4, his relationship with God, his relationship with others in Nineveh, his relationship with creation, his relationship with himself, envy clouds and distorts and corrodes all of it. Like he's characterized by just this bitterness and this anger and this reactivity and this instability, and he's up and down, and that's what envy does to us, right? It, it drives us to withhold praise that's due others. We can't delight in their accomplishments and their blessings if we envy them. The best we can do when the people that we envy get good things or perform well is we can say, we can kind of damn them with faint praise, right? Like, well, that was good. When in our hearts, we know it was, it was masterful, it was wonderful, it was beautiful, but we can say, yeah, it, it was sufficient. It was adequate, right? In our envy, it drives us to this hypersensitivity where we live in fear and anxiety that others might get good things that we feel like we deserve, and then we're not sure how we can endure that. And so we walk around just always kind of this low-grade, kind of anxiety, on edge, unsure. Even the mention of someone's name whom we envy can just invoke this distortion, this disturbance within us. It makes us what you call emotionally labile right look at jo- jonah's emotional instability i mean he's he's way down god shows none of a mercy god sends a plant and he's like on cloud nine exceedingly glad god takes away the plant he's way down again I mean, he's just up and down up and down up and down that's no way to live is it envy makes our life more narrow right It, over time, it will narrow your group of friends as more and more friends become rivals, become enemies. It narrows your ability to experience joy and goodness because the more you become dissatisfied with your life, the more painful it is to accept it, the more you can't grant that you even have good things that could give you joy because your heart's so set on that one thing that others have that you don't. Envy makes life hard. It makes life cold. But perhaps maybe the most important thing, the most devastating thing that envy does us, does to us, we see this in Jonah, is it drives us to, to loathe God's mercy, to be bitter at the sight of God's mercy, to delegitimize the concept of mercy or grace. Look at Jonah. The, the text literally says in verse 1 that God's mercy to Nineveh was exceedingly evil to him. That's what it literally says. We, we render it different ways. He loathes God's mercy as soon as it's shown to someone he doesn't like, someone he doesn't think deserves it. See, envy is all for justice. Like, it's, it's, it's all about, but it's a skewed justice. It's a justice where we're the benchmark. Uh, Frederick Beekner, who always has a pithy way of saying something, he says, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as we are. Now, is that, that's harsh. That's a bitter, one, bitter pill to swallow, but you, do you see that? You don't want people to excel over you. You want them to be, it's not that you want them all below, you just don't want them any, they don't want their head any higher than yours. Nose to nose everybody, or maybe you just slightly above. That's how envy drives us. Envy says, if I don't have it, then no one else should have it either. It's not fair if anyone else has it. It's not just if anyone else has it. It's all about dessert, not what you eat, but merit. It's all about that, but it's this skewed where I'm the benchmark and what I have and don't have, everyone else has to mirror that. And so consider where in your life you may think only about fairness, only about justice and never mercy. And where are you hypercritical? Where's your grid for giving praise or acknowledging good? Like it's so narrow, it's so demanding that that the best you can say is, man, that's good. You feel that impulse in you at times. When do you feel it? That's where envy may be, may be present. That's where it may be driving you more than you think. I've told you before, sometimes when I listen to other people preach or back in the like when I was in uh, when I was in school or in counseling school and we had group supervision where a group of students would come together with a professor and you would present a case. And part of the case, the first thing you would do is show a little video clip of you with with the client or the patient or the person. And I remember, you know, I would be watching, be waiting for other people to play their clip, and there's just kind of this thing that would happen in my heart where, like, the, the, uh, the benchmarks, like the, the minimum sufficient kind of criteria for praise would just get really, really high. There would almost be this fear that this person would have just like a knockout session because it would remind me that I don't have it all together. Right? It would provoke this kind of bitterness and disorientation in me. And that's the experience of envy. It can happen and we don't even realize it. But it, it renders our hearts and our life cold. So where might you be driven by envy? Where might you be driven by it? And then why do we envy? If it's not any fun, and I've already kind of alluded to this, why do we do it? Like what's Well, there is something in it for us. There is something in it, and it's this. We benefit from it, and we benefit from it because as long as we're driven by envy, we spare ourselves the deeper pain of truly feeling the loss, truly feeling less than, truly accepting a life where we may not get what we want. That's what envy does. That's the positive effect it has on us. Envy avoids or defers the feeling of loss, of helplessness, of lack of, of control. Right? Remember what Jonas says, I knew you were a merciful God, therefore it's better for me to die. And Jonah is literally willing, he says he's willing, he doesn't actually try to take his life, that's that's a bit of a bravado from him, but he says, I literally would prefer to die than have to watch you, God, in your mercy, show that mercy to Nineveh. I'd rather die than see that. I'd rather die than live in a world where that's true. Why does he do that? Because it's too painful for him to accept that that's the world he lives in. And that's who God is. Envy is driven by avoiding the pain. And I'm telling you, I know this about some of you and you know this about yourselves. Some of us, me, we're, we feel like if we truly accepted at times in our life or now in the present, we feel like if we truly accepted our life as it was, if we just let ourselves be around those people who have what we so desperately want, if we just did that, we just accepted and said, okay, that's the way life is. We can't bring our hearts to do that because it would just crush us, we feel like. We couldn't live. We can't imagine living in a life like that. It's like being in a crowded room that becomes more and more just there's voices and there's confusion and there's disorientation. So in our envy, we turn up the white noise until we can't hear anything else. We can't see. We're not aware of anyone around us. It's a miserable place to be. It's not a fun experience to have the noise turned up that loud, but it's better than accepting the world that we really live in, right? Some of us feel like we can't just accept that those who've hurt us deeply may still get good things, that God could still give them blessings, No, we can't accept that. Of course we can't accept that. That's where Jonah is. I will never accept that. If I did accept it, it would crush me. How would I live in a world like that? That's what our envy says. And yes, envy flows from from idolatry. It's finding our deep worth in something other than God. Envy keeps reaching for, insisting on the things that God hasn't given, right? And then it seeks to tear from everyone else what they've been given that we want, It's a form of idolatry, but it is this just deep form of resistance ultimately to God. Jonah cannot let God be God. His problem with God is that he is God. As he defines himself on Jonah's quoting scripture, as Jesus defines himself in Exodus 34 on Mount Sinai, who he is. And Jonah says, I can't accept that about you. Envy is resistance to God. That makes envy scary. Jonah says, God, you're not, it's not fair that you show mercy to a city that's so corrupt. He looks at God showing mercy to Nineveh, and he says, you're a fool for doing that. You're empowering our enemies. You know they're going to use that power against us. That's not strategic. You don't know what you're doing. So God's unjust. God's foolish. But then more personally, you see it in his heart. This is why he's so angry. As he looks at God and He says, if God is willing to spare Nineveh, knowing how I feel about them, knowing the threat they represent to Israel— he can't be for me. He can't truly love me. He can't care for me. There's no way he loves me. Envy is this response to the pain of loss, of lack, of feeling small, of feeling less than. But the problem with envy is it only, it only inflates us. It only defers the feeling of loss. It only masks the pain with the noise of misery. It drives us to think and behave as if we are more just and equitable than God as if we know better than God, as if we would be more loving and good than God if we had all his power. That's the heart of envy. We cannot let God be God. Now, what's the treatment? How does God treat Jonah's envy? Well, it's just with this beautiful mercy, this deep, wide mercy. But there's a process that God uses as he works carefully, patiently, to show Jonah his mercy. And it starts with questions. These wonderful questions. Oh, good questions. are so powerful. God questions Jonah. And except for one sentence in chapter four, which is a preface to a question, all of God's words in chapter four are in the form of questions. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry over the plant? Should I not pity that great city? What's, Jonah, what's God doing for Jonah there? He's encouraging Jonah. at least be a little curious about his envious anger. Is it calibrated? Does it it make sense? In our envy, the first thing we need to do is just to, to turn down the white noise in our heart, just enough to be, just start with curiosity about your envy. Noticing how it shows up and noticing what it's saying and where it's driving you. For Jonah, envy looked like deep anger. For you, it might look more like hurt or disillusionment or despair. It might be a feeling of abandonment, of being overlooked or unseen. But what does it look like for you? And then ask questions. God interrogates Jonah's envious anger. And we have to interrogate ours. Do we do well to let these feelings drive us? To let these feelings just be and not address them? What is driving your envy? Often it's fear, some sort or another. What are you afraid will happen if you just accept The life as it is now, and accept doesn't mean approve. It doesn't mean you're happy completely with it, but you say, this is what it is. What happens? What are you afraid will happen to you if you let God just be God? Where's the fear there? How does the story play out? And is that story true? Does it make sense? Is that story telling the truth about you and how God has made you and the strength of his spirit in you? Some of us feel like it will crush us to accept that. Will it really? Will God's spirit let you be crushed? No, he won't. So often our envy and all of our strong emotions that drive us, they don't tell the truth about the world we live in, the God we follow, and even the people that we are. Some of us growing up, we thought you can't be happy with second place. It's no good. And there's a good reason you thought that, because your parents weren't happy if it was second place. And you take that same disposition, And that same craving for the top honor into other areas of your life. But who told you? Did God ever tell you you can't be happy with second? He never did. God is happy with a second place. What if it's that easy sometimes? Just you have the freedom to be happy with a second place. You don't have to be at the top. Jonah felt like God's mercy is this kind of scarce resource if he's showing mercy over here, there's not enough left for me. It's not, it can't be powerful enough for me. But who told Jonah that God is abounding in mercy? There's always enough mercy to go around. Where did he get the idea that there wasn't? That came from somewhere. I'm curious. I'd, I'd like to speculate, but I won't. But some of you have grown up in families, you've grown up in, in, in or at school or wherever it was for you, and you're in this circle of friends, and you've got this sense that like. There's only so much praise to go around, only so much love to go around. And if you're not in the, the top 20% of the fringe circle or of your own sibling circle, then you don't quite get the love, so you've got to get up there. You've got to stay up there. That's not how God works. You can be wherever you are in that, and God sees you and he knows you. right? So we question our emotions. We question this envy. We interrogate it gently, curiously, but firmly, making sure it's telling the truth. But next, this is, this is profound to me, is that just recognize you're hurting. You're in pain. I mean, that's what God does with Jonah. Despite Jonah's resistance, God comforts Jonah in his envious anger. Right? He provides this comfort in the form of a plant for shade. And that's kind of crazy. It's crazy to me that he does this. I mean, I, I, this would not be my impulse. <laughs> Jonah goes out and sits. He makes himself a little covering, a little tent or whatever it was to cover himself From the sun, and he's still hot as can be. And I'm like, Yeah, that's exactly the way you should feel. And I'm not going to do a thing to make you feel better. Right? God's like, Hmm, too hot. He's hurting too much. I'm going to cover him. Jonah makes himself a covering. It's not good enough. God provides a better covering for him. That's God's impulse. He's not like, all right, go ahead, see what happens. Go your way. No, God goes with him. He's patient with him. He's working in him, working for him. He provides a covering for him. He provides him comfort in Jonah's pain, despite the fact that most of Jonah's pain flows from his own disordered heart. It's Jonah's own problem. It doesn't matter to God. It matters to God, but it doesn't. He still shows care. He still shows compassion. He still covers him. So God covers him. He comforts him in his pain, despite the fact that it's Jonah's own fault that he feels the pain. He comforts, but then he does confront, right? I'm not going to leave that one out. He confronts. He appoints this plant to grow, but then he, he appoints a worm to, to eat the plant, to take it away. Then he appoints a, a wind to come and blister Jonah. And wh- what's happening here? Is this kind of like, is it kind of capricious on God's part? Is it like good cop, bad cop? I mean, how, how do you read this? Like, what do you think about that? But look at, look, at, look at God's words. Look at what he seems to be doing here. Right, he seems to be kind of in his own way. And God seems to do this sometimes. He, he's warming Jonah's heart to his mercy, right, his compassion. And Jonah grieves over the plant. God says, you put nothing in the plant. It's been alive and dead for a day. It's, not, it's a plant, Jonah. You've got, this, you, you've got the grief in you. You've got the compassion in you, but you're showing it all for a plant. Look at what I'm showing it for. A hundred, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, and they don't even know they're left from their right. They don't even know what's good and wrong, Jonah. And their cattle, <laughs> right? And their cows and all the other livestock. It's like, I don't know exactly what, I mean, cows are a form of wealth. In chapter three, you know, the cattle are fasting, and God might be like, they're thirsty, Jonah, and that's sad and kind of funny, but they're tired and they need some water. Right, Or maybe it's like Jonah, after the cattle would be the plants. I care about the plants too, but what about the cattle and what about the people, Jonah? Aren't they worth more? It's this confrontation, but what's God trying to do? He's trying to open up Jonah's heart to his mercy. Let it in, Jonah. Let it in. Of course God cares about Nineveh and their cattle. And the question for Jonah is, can he let the loving God? that beautiful, powerful picture of God and his mysterious compassion and love, can he let that in? Can he let his heart be moved by it? His heart wants to be moved by it. Will Jonah let his heart be moved? It's almost like that for him. If Jonah's going to do that, though, it will require some pain. He'll have to feel that loss, the loss of control to let God be God, to let Nineveh of us stand. Even as a potential future enemy, Jonah has to give up this nationalistic nationalistic kind of agenda that drives so much of his envy, right? But there's a huge gain and it's so easy not to see the gain because all we see is the immediate pain, but it's this leap of faith that Jonah must take. And there's a huge gain. There is something to be gained by it. And it's God. It's embracing again, being renewed once again in God's love for him and his compassion for him. God makes it hot for Jonah so that Jonah can see how good and lovely God is that maybe Jonah will be distracted from his prideful, inflated envy and nationalism, and again marvel at the goodness of God. And if you've ever marveled at God's goodness, if you've ever been in awe at anything, it feels really good. It just does. Worship, ultimately, is kind of the solution. It's what God is trying to coax Jonah into. It's what God does with Job. It's what the psalmist in Psalm 73, it's what Saul says, envy is the seeing God and his justice and his mercy and his power and his glory and worshiping, marveling. All this jealous desire, he wants, he wants condemnation for Nitneveh, All that jealous desire now may be focused on God and he says, I have God. I, I am fulfilled. Giving up our envy requires a great loss, but it's a huge gain as well. And, of course, the the story ends, you know, just with a question. And that's funny because it's like, well, did did Jonah ever get better? Like, was God effective? And um, I like what at least Tim Keller, um, the late Tim Keller, pastor and author, he notes that, like, hey, I mean, this is Jonah's story. How in the world do we know it? You know, like, how do we find out about it? Well, he told somebody probably. At some point, he got to a place where he could share this experience with other people. And that that seems to indicate a new kind of self-awareness. I mean, look how he tells it. (laughs) He doesn't make make himself look good. The change of heart is there. He's brutally honest about his anger, about his problem with God's compassion. He does change. Uh, He looks at his story. Hindsight maybe is 2020, and he sees like all throughout that time. I mean, I was shaking my fist at God, and he was just walking with me. I'm punching him in the chest, and he's just there. Yes, he's affected by it, but he never loses control. And this, he just walks with me. He's patient with me. When I questions him, when I question him, what do you think you're doing? He always knew what he was doing. He was good. He was working goodness. When I question, how could God ever show mercy to somebody like Nineveh and still love me? Oh, I see now, he has enough love for me too. That's what he was trying to show me the whole time. Now see it. And of course, we have a much more powerful story to reflect on than Jonah did. I mean, we have the story of Jesus, right? Jesus, this greater Jonah, who, like Jonah, warns of God's judgment, but then he takes the judgment on the cross, right? Jonah looks at Nineveh and he says, you know, his heart is consumed with this bitterness. And he says, if they're spared, it's better for me to die than to live, right? Jesus looks at us in our corruption, in our lostness, in our brokenness, in our sin. He's not moved with bitterness. He's moved with compassion and pity and love. And he says, it's better for me to die than to live in order to spare them. He's the perfect foil for Jonah. Jonah saw something of that in God and the way that he related Jonah. But we see it so much clearly in how Jesus, how God relates to us in Jesus and so the cure, kind of as we move into this little, like a, let me, a couple of things just like practically, what does this look like? Envy is relational. It's a relational problem, and it's healed, cured in relationships. First, with God. What we see is, in a sense, we have to see how unfair God is with us, right? We want to talk merit. We could never merit his mercy. That doesn't make sense for one. And we could never merit his love. We're too, too far gone. We see just how much grace God has shown us in our obsession with merit, our obsession with a certain kind of obsession we have with justice. It, it begins to diminish. Our, our vision begins to widen, to expand, right? When we see that we've withheld so much of ourselves from God, and he withholds nothing of himself from us. He doesn't give us everything we want. He doesn't. Some of us know deep, deep lack of good things that most other people have. But God does not withhold Himself from you. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that if you have everything, that the person who has everything and has God has no much, has no more than the person who has God and has nothing. And that's a fact. Right? That's, that's a fact. God isn't saying you can't come to Me with your complaint, you can't lament to Me. But God is saying, like, don't don't insist that I let you be God. Let Me be God. Trust Me. Right. So a healthy relationship with God. It leads to this, to envy kind of being drained of its energy. Now we're seeing more clearly. Now we're being more curious. Now we're feeling a little bit more compassion. That transforms our relationship with ourself, right? God is patient with Jonah, and you can be patient with yourself. It takes time to see the world the way that Jonah has to learn to see it. It takes time. It's a process. Let the process, let God work within you. He doesn't do it all at once. But especially envy is cured in relationship with other people. Being seen and known by others is so important. Being like being praised by others is a good thing, a gift from God. And our envy often we can't let ourselves feel that praise, feel the joy of that praise, but it but we can learn to. We don't just experience God's love privately in prayer, we experience it with others. And so being in deep community where you're seen and known. Um it's so important, but let me, let me, let me make this point. Like Jesus in the new, like we have this new creational promise, right? That in the new creation, life is good. No more envy, like no more unrequited deep long. The new creation promises that everything good, true, beautiful, that your heart desires you will have. Not that every envious fantasy will be given to you. That's not the promise, right? But if your heart longs for, it and it's good, good for you, God will give it to you. Now, the beauty of the Christian community is that even here, we can start to kind of partake in that. We can start to have the goodness of our envious desires begin to be touched on, to be heard, to be fulfilled. And it can happen in all kinds of small ways, not grand ways. You've got to accept it's going to be small, but it's it can be profound. I mean, some of us envy those who grew up in very emotionally healthy families because our relationship with our parents or our siblings is broken, maybe beyond repair. Maybe we can't imagine being connected to them again. And you see other families and just like, oh, there's this resentment. So notice the resentment, deal with it, but also see in this community, brothers and sisters who will love you, who will restore something that's lost. Can you accept that they won't be your actual brothers and sisters, like your biological, but they will still be some, actually something even more powerful than that is available to you. God uses our gifts that we bring together to meet those needs, to, to even diminish the need for or the, the existence of envy as we fulfill the goodness of our envious desires in each other. Some of you long to be teachers. You know? We have home groups where people need your insight. We have a catechesis class every Sunday where kids will delight to have you teach them. I can attest to that. But is that enough for you? Oh, no, that's... I want to... That's, that's the fantasy. Bring it to the real world. You want to have an influence on people. You want to teach people. There's it's a, there's a joy in that, and that's good. God provides you opportunities here to do that. The question is, will you accept what he's given you here? Will that be enough for you? It touches on it. It's not going to take all the desire away, all the longing away, but it touches on it. God has heard that, and He's, he meets you here, right? And so see in this community a way of life available that begins to take the edge off the different hurts and the longings. It's our goal for each other, hopefully. And then last, obviously, don't avoid the people you envy. Get in their presence. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Don't, you don't necessarily have to confess it to them. You might. You might confess it to somebody else you trust. You may not confess it to anybody but God, but stay in their presence. Keep striving to love them. Fake it till you feel it. Fake it till you feel it because the Spirit is in you, and he longs to give you the power and courage to go into their presence. It's, it is in there, in you, in the spirit. You find it sometimes just by stepping in faith and saying, God, show it to me as you fake it, okay? So it's a difficult calling, but I think all of us deep down, don't we wanna become that kind of person? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it free to delight, even when God shows mercy to your enemies? Oh, what would life be like? can have that, right? And as we come to the table, that's the power that God offers us here, right? In this table, we see the mystery and the power of God's love for us. We see God's mercy in Jesus' broken body and shed blood. He spares you from judgment. We see God's wisdom and power working in and for you as surely as you take in the bread and wine into your body. We see God's love and compassion as he joyously sets a feast for you and delights to have you with him, even if you're second place or third or fourth. We see Jesus, our Savior, right? And so here at this table, as you come, here's what you need to do, is you you want to focus all the jealous desire on him. Take all that you got and focus it on him. And know that you have him. You have what you long for in him. And then you'll find, you'll taste, won't be permanent probably, but you'll find that rest, that soul rest, that heart rest, Um, as you come to the table. Let's pray.